This episode is brought to you by Matcha. Stay tuned for more information about them later in the episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, most crypto enthusiasts watch price action or charts, buy dips, and try to take profits when the number goes up. Others take a more nuanced approach and read between the lines to really understand the structure and activity of the crypto market. Willie Wu, today's guest, is arguably the best on-chain analyst in the crypto space. With an expert-level understanding of what's going on behind the scenes, it's my hope that Willie can help us all better understand what's happening in the market, what he's currently watching, what he expects for the remainder of the current crypto cycle and beyond. Willie Wu, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, so listen, something that just stuck out to me that I heard in the last couple of days, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Fed, did a meeting and said that a digital dollar would replace the need for private cryptocurrencies. I'm curious how you would respond to that uh, amazing comment. Well, yeah, I, I actually did a tweet recently. It was like recalling, you know, Bitcoin encoded that, you know, on the Genesis block, the chancellor on the brink of a second bailout was essentially central bankers on the brink of back then it was bailing out the banks which had failed us and now they're on the brink of um, essentially releasing the central bank digital currencies which um, really you know if you think about that like um, what's happened since 2008 is that the the, the government has um, you know fused together the policy of fiscal and monetary uh, meaning like if you're if you're not managing your books well um, you get a free pass and you get to print lots of money meaning you can steal from the poor and give to the rich and and keep going as if nothing's going to happen and essentially what they're doing now is saying well well we're going to essentially make that a, a production um, technology and we're going to release central bank digital currencies a digital dollar out to everyone so we can actually instigate this very very efficiently um, so, you know, I, I'm thinking, well, if you would look at that, you're, you're, you're essentially stealing from the poor, giving to the rich and every kind of, um, if you look back on history, every time that's happened, it's ended in either revolution or, um, like a totalitarian society. So in effect, um, what is, what, what central bankers are doing is, um, anti-democratic, um, and, um, so it's absolutely no substitute for Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin is the opposite to that. It's it, it's the exact opposite. In fact, it's encoded in the blockchain that this is a solution to what central banks are offering, which is a digital dollar. Right. What, what really made me scratch my head was the idea that it made private, private coins obsolete, which is so colorblind. <laughs> Clearly, that's true for the government, because like you said, central banks want utter and complete control of the monetary supply and a digital dollar would do that. But for your average citizen, it's quite the opposite, right? I mean, the it, entire it, it, as CBDC <laughs> makes cryptocurrencies that are private more important for us. Very much so. And it's, um, I mean, we're in a bubble, right? We're totally in a, um, you know, crypto, Bitcoin, well-educated bubble. And I kind of am out of touch with what, you know, the people on the street um, think about this. Um, I, I'm interested to know because it's very, very scary for all of us inside the world of Bitcoin that understands um, a little bit more than the rest um, on how money works. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how how um, the general public will receive this because um, it's scary. Yeah. It's really I think scary. we are in a bubble, as you said, definitely an echo chamber in our own community. I'm curious if you think though. In the last year and a half since COVID hit and you know lockdowns and all of the printing and, and infinite QE, the increase in the monetary supply, do you think that your average person has at least some inkling now of the idea that, holy crap, maybe this is wrong? Like maybe we can't just print money? Because I think your average person never thought about their money in the past. Yeah, maybe. You know, certainly crypto's taken huge gains and a lot more people are looking at it and um, you know, one thing I've noticed is that since COVID's um, hit and everyone's been stuck inside their houses for over a year, 
um, there's been a lot of, um, you know, people on YouTube researching, a lot of that's come out in a lot of conspiracy. A lot of people are very conspiracist and anti-trusting of their government. So there's that. I, I, I can imagine a, a large breadth of the um, population really mistrusting government and going, whatever they want to do, we don't trust. Um, so yeah, maybe. Um, do you think that uh, central banks and I, I guess governments and regulation in general are still the largest threat to Bitcoin's future? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, actually, if I was to think longer term, um, I think maybe the the threat to Bitcoin's um, future is really a threat on its own um, decentralization. Um, I don't. I actually don't think. But um, I don't think um, central banks. Yeah, I don't think that central banks is the long-term threat. Um, uh, yeah, I, I. I think that money is more powerful than um, you know the central banks and the money printers. Um, history usually sides um, sides on whoever has. Um, well, let's say totalitarian societies don't really last very long. Um, <laughs> right. And these concentrations of power, they're, they're very much aberrations in the long arc of history. And we're going through, you know, this digital revolution and you're talk we're talking about a internet native technology, a monetary technology, monetary base, um, which is completely native to the internet versus some sort of central authority, um, kind of clunky. It is not really... A digital dollar essentially a private network um and so i you know it doesn't it doesn't work um like we've always seen regime we've had this big technology change like the last time it was the industrial age right we, we changed the structure of money it went from commodity money bits of gold to um, paper money that was backed by gold um, and it's like a layer two because it, it can move efficiently across a globalized society with an industrial age right so so that that was necessary for to facilitate trade, facilitate trade, but then you you'll notice that the power structure changed from kingdoms to um, you know nation states. So, like right now, we're in nation states, and and they want to create um, a digital dollar and a centralized banking system. Whilst we're going through this technical revolution, which is saying no, we want something a little bit more fluid than that. Um, and usually that what changes is not, um, you know, the technology, technology goes forward, it's the power structure changes. So I do think that the nation state, as we know, it is coming to an end much quicker than most people think. We think this might be a century kind of thing. Um, the rate of Bitcoin's growth, um, you know, one in eight people will have exposure to it in four years. Um, it'll double in the next four years. No, double every year after it. So right. we're looking into the decade. Um, the majority of the world on this network. It's faster than any other network in history. So we're looking at a major power shift in the next ten years. I, I think that um, we'll start to transition from very powerful nation states to like smaller nations, um, city states, um, and I, I think that that'll be profound. I think those will be the areas that are prosperous. Um, so yeah, I feel like this is like the last ditch effort from a dying um, power structure. And so uh, uh, the to answer the question, yeah, I don't think that is the right. the 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 risk. I think the risk is if Bitcoin fails internally from centralization. Can you talk a bit more about that? If if it becomes too centralized, um, then you know. It, it fails on its original objective, which is um, really a, a kind of democratic, monetary democracy, essentially. Um, if you centralize the control of the money, then um, we're back to where we started, very centralized control. And if, if that was centralized and controlled by a nation state, then um, this whole future that we, we think about, um, where uh, we have like um, a fair monetary system ceases to be um, fair anymore. So yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's the biggest risk. And I, I think also the the people don't really understand that as a as as the most important thing in Bitcoin is its decentralization. So a lot of people talk about oh XYZ coin. <laughs> 
is more scalable. It has this or that faster block times or whatever, but that's not really important. When you're talking about winning the game of being the monetary base, which is like $100 trillion, um, you need that to be decentralized. So I would rather have a 10-minute block time um, than um, you know, a nanosecond block time with something that's highly centralized because that that's a failure um so right or less yeah. secure yeah or less secure obviously yeah. uh, so speaking of decentralizing then how do you feel about the fact that china has finally seemingly is actually <laughs> banning bitcoin mining which in my estimation long term is a good thing because it, it's less centralized in china but i'm curious as to with what you just said in mind the impact of what's happening in china now yeah, for sure. It is It is definitely reducing um, the centralization. Um, it's a really good thing that's happened. It's, it's ridiculously bullish um, in the long term, short term, you know, there's, it's short term often moves in the other direction, which we're seeing. Um, yeah, it mitigates a lot of attack. It, it mitigates an attack from a state actor like China attacking the network. Um, also, there's repercussions, subtle ones like, um, you know, like maybe you call it minor extracted value. We've seen in 2017, um, there was actually these this this particular market environment where you're actually incentivized as a miner to attack the network. Um, and they did, right? In 2017, there was a phase where the block um, was 93% filled. Um, it was very congested. And um, at that point, if one miner um, controlled or a cartel of miners controlled um, the network, um, what you could do is spam the network, actually pay and outbid the fees um, in the mempool and, and you know, create this kind of Dutch auction where everyone would have to bid higher for their fees or their transactions wouldn't be processed. And, and so effectively, um, these miners were spamming the network um, so that they could extract more value in mining. Um, and so um, that, that attack vector starts to reduce and actually that attack vector becomes very, very important um, later on in Bitcoin's um, kind of maturity is, is the kind of, you know, the inflation rate drops, the block um, subsidy, um, the new blocks that are being rewarded start to diminish to zero. All we're left um, for the miners is um, that fees market. So what they earn from those fees becomes very important. Um, and usually in that setup, the, um, the, the, the fees are quite high. The blocks are very full. And um, that incentive for a miner to spam the network only works if you control enough of it so that you're right. guaranteed. If you control 50% of the net, well, say 30%, you'll yeah. get 30% of those fees back, right? So um, those kind of, um, when you have, when you decentralize that part of the network, um, it reduces a lot of the, um, the risk to the, to the network. So yeah, it's hugely important. I'm laughing so, sort of because it made me think of what's going on with uh, Bitcoin SV or BSV, Satoshi Vision, uh, at the moment where they're finding, uh, <laughs> you know, trading being frozen on a number of exchanges because um, it lacks the things that you're talking about and they're experiencing 51% attacks. Exactly. I was like, they're, they're, they put out a, a statement saying this is an illegal attack on the network, but actually, no, it, it's it's an incentivized attack on the network because you designed it wrong. <laughs> Big blocks yeah. create that. Um, so interesting it's, karma it's, for Craig Wright, I guess, uh, <laughs> at the moment. Yeah, it's, well, you know, he's supposed to be this rocket scientist, according to his own words, you know, like, like he's a genius according to his words, but um, he's designed a network that incentivizes attack from its own miners. Yeah. Um, and he didn't know that, but that was really clear. I mean, I saw, <laughs> I saw these incentives work out in 2017 as the whole thing became congested. Yeah. Um, so listen, I got into Bitcoin late 2016 and I came in strictly as a trader. I think like a lot of people, I came for the dollars and stayed for, uh, you know, took the orange pill and stayed. But one of the arguments when I first came in, cause I'd been trading other markets was, Bitcoin's amazing. It has no fundamentals. You can just look at the chart and trade the chart. And it doesn't matter, right? So obviously you learn later that the, it has fundamentals, just not the same 
as a corporation, right? You don't have earnings like Apple or Amazon, but you have on-chain metrics. So that's clearly where you focus. I, I'd love to hear you talk about what those important fundamentals are of Bitcoin as far as on-chain metrics. And for anyone who doesn't even understand it to talk about why that's what you focus so heavily on. Yeah, so like, you know, most investors, probably the the, the most common um, understanding around investing investment is in stocks and companies. So we're very used to like a company and a balance sheet and profit and loss and the evaluation on, you know, the kind of money they're making and the growth of that, that company and the money they'll make in the future. Whereas Bitcoin can't be considered um, this, you know, it's a, it's a commodity. It's a digital commodity. Um, the only fundamentals you see in it are essentially people buying it to hold it. Um, and so if we were to do this with gold, um, well, you can't because it doesn't have a blockchain, so you can't trace it, right? So, you know, gold's kind of private, but um, on the other side, there's no fundamentals you can track. So with Bitcoin, we have this blockchain and it's really interesting because we've got the first time a fully visible ledger and you can see investor movements. Um, you can see flows of capital. And when we look at the blockchain, we're essentially looking at, um, you know, short-term and long-term demand and supply by um, these investors um, and speculators and all the different participants, including miners and um, and um, exchanges and, and, and whatnot. So um, effectively, we're doing that. Um, like, I think my, my first um, indicator that was published was NVT, and it was kind of billed as the price earnings ratio of um, Bitcoin. And I'll, I'll, I'll describe this as an example because we're used to a price earnings ratio. A company has earnings and then we, we run a ratio to its um, share price and um, that's the PE ratio. And whereas Bitcoin didn't have earnings, right? It's not a company, but it does have activity and the activity is um, correlated to um, volume because when you see volume on its blockchain, not volume on the on the um, exchanges because that can be wash traded. You can do all sorts of volume games in there, but it's not indicative of um, long-term investors. So when you look at the long-term investors moving coins between participants, that's if I if you see coin, movement of coins, that's usually movements from a buyer to a seller, and so you can get a volume of investment activity there, and so. It turns out, you know, the more investment activity you get in the network, the higher the valuation. The correlation is very, very high. So what you do is you run the ratio to that. And effectively, the earnings is kind of like the investment um, activity, the volume. And that became NVT. So that's a very simple example of trying to draw demand and supply when, you know, investment velocity is very high um, and the price isn't... Um, Reflecting that, it means the market is not pricing that incorrectly. So um, often what you'll see is the price runs up afterwards once it figures it out. Uh, and were any of those signals present uh, on the run-up, I guess, from 3,800 all the way to 65? But I think more people would ask, were any of those signals present that the drop was coming when, when we reached the top? Yeah, so um, interestingly with, um, you know, the story goes back to COVID, um, the COVID crash in, um, you know, the first and second quarter of last year, like we saw this, the price pull back from 10,000, that flash crash to 4,000, recovered to 10,000 and it went just sideways and it was very correlated to stocks and people were saying this is crap you know we're just it's not a safe haven gold's going up you know the, you know it should be performing and it's not do something you know it's just moving up and down with stocks and if you look on chain you'll see that something else happened um the the inventory on um, spot exchanges the speculative inventory i call it um that was starting to deplete as long-term investors were starting to scoop up all those coins. And you could see it also on the blockchain because you can look into all the, you can cluster all the wallets together and you know, all the address spaces and you go, oh, that's one person, that's another person, that's another person. And you can do a historical analysis of their wallets and you can then categorize the guys that are long-term investors who don't sell, they just keep accumulating and the speculative kind of holder that moves coins in and out of the exchanges, you know? So 
Um, you could also see the the long-term investors who are just buying, scooping up all the coins and the speculative guys giving up their supply and, and being bought up by these long-term guys. And it just carried on for like nine months and it went all the way to October. So effectively, um, there was this huge supply shock that was forming and the market was completely not pricing that in. So when it did get priced in um, by late October, um, we did this run up and it went from, you know, 10,000 to $60,000. And if you were a technical analyst, you'd go, oh, oversold, oversold by 20,000 was oversold. And just you, all your technical indicators would be saying, this is completely bonkers. The market's gone bonkers, but actually it hadn't gone bonkers. The market was bonkers going sideways pricing, not pricing in supply shock. Um, and it was just finding equilibrium, finding its new balance and effectively um, pricing um, that supply shock in in the fifty thousand range, um, and so um, you know, with with that, we um, on chain things looked pretty. You know, it was it's still looking kind of momentum was bullish, um, but there were a few key, key things that happened. Um, whales started dumping. Um, and like i certainly didn't think it would pull back to this level um like we we saw like a little bit of dumping but i kind of thought we'd go even higher but um effectively it wasn't till like mid mid i think 45,000 50 to 45,000 um things looked extremely bearish um i put out a very bearish call at around that zone um and that was you could see a lot of coins moving um, from previously strong hands back to um, speculative hands. And so um, like a lot of the guys that had bought the coins um, in the last quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year, they bought, you know, kind of sub 20,000 was taking profit. Um, and those guys started dumping. Um, that's what you could see on chain. You could see, and and these guys weren't small fry. They were whales. They were effectively um, like ten thousand, a thousand bitcoins or more. Like yeah, ridiculous amounts of like. And these were noobs, um, effectively. Like in twenty seventeen, we had um, you know as a boom run comes up, it collects a lot of new investors, and those noobs get frightened in the in the volatility kind of ups and downs and. They sell out and they get snapped up by the smart, you know, hands that are well capitalized. And in this year, what we saw was um, the noobs were like hedge funds swinging, you know, 50 million, 100 million, 200 million, and they're taking profit. And so, you know, the 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 people who like know Bitcoin and it's like, yeah, this is going up over the long term, they're snapping it up, but they're getting crushed by the sell power of, you know the these these whales so that's effectively what's happened now um that you can see all this on chain um and now we're in this sort of sideways band where a lot of liquidity is being dumped back onto the market um so there's a lot of coins that are being reabsorbed by um long-term holders um and you know that's been that process has been going for two two months now um yeah so, it, Eight weeks of weekly candles, if you look at the chart, and I don't know when this will come out, but uh, eight, eight weeks have basically gone below 34K and then closed above. Every time it drops below that level, it just gets absolutely eaten up and, and bought back up. So it really is interesting to watch. And I never heard the perspective that you just said that now we have whales that are noobs, which is not yeah, something well, that noobs. we ever had before. But it, it makes perfect sense because a hedge fund has people to answer to, right? If you're a hedge fund manager and you're up, 4x on an investment that you made a couple months ago you literally have to sell yeah you have to rebalance hey you have rebalance. to by protocol they have to do it right you know? yeah so. yeah i mean it's a absolutely a necessity what i find funny i actually did something i rarely do and i told twitter that i was going to be uh speaking with you today and ask for questions and across the board you get the same sort of thing that i get whenever i'm on twitter which is why didn't you know this was going to happen why didn't you tell us and I always <laughs> laugh that people assume that we have crystal balls, right? And that we can literally yeah. tell the future. But people are like, you know, he was telling people to buy at 60K. Well, so was I. And frankly, I still think you should have bought at 60K because I'm thinking about a decade from now and not a month from now. 
right? So yeah, do you think it's uh, just that people are too impatient and too focused on now? I think it's very reflective of the, the, the cycle we're in. It's, it's a bull cycle and we're collecting a lot of new investors and they're new to the market and they think um, it's a crystal ball, right? And, you know, if you're a long-term trader, you're generally like 55% correct. If you're a good on, you know, technical trader, you <laughs> might be right 55%, you know, you, you make money because of your risk management and your stops, right? If you've got extremely good analysis skills, you, you might be 60%, like the best algorithm I've ever built was winning 60% of the trades, right? Um, so it's very seldom you get above 60%. And, um, and so it's like that, like with, the, the, the backtrace of on-chain that I've done is about um, 80%, right? It's 80% and people are going, expecting 100%. Well, if you can get 100%, well, why would I ever just, I just keep that like secret and forever. Yeah. I'd be the emperor of the world. The emperor of the world is 100% um, reads the, the future, you know, it's Iosauron. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> so, very true. Yeah. Guys, I really hope that all of you are not still trading on the old platforms like Uniswap when there are much better options like Matcha. And now Matcha has upgraded to 2.0. Now, I've told you about Matcha a number of times. They have limit orders, which these other platforms don't, which is absolutely incredible. So you don't have to sit there staring at your screen waiting for that perfect moment to enter or exit a trade. And they also aggregate liquidity from all of the different platforms, finding you the best price and reduced fees. But now they have Matcha 2.0 and have added so many awesome features. Matcha is now the only DEX with an integrated fiat on-ramp. You can put your dollars directly onto the platform. They also now have OTC trading for orders between 1K and 1 million, which is beyond huge. And maybe most importantly, Matcha now supports trading on Polygon, meaning that those gas fees will almost evaporate completely. Now, if you guys want to check out Matcha, which you absolutely should, you can do that at the Wolf of All Streets dot link slash matcha that's the wolf of all streets dot link slash matcha please check them out i'm telling you it will save you so much money and it's such a superior experience do it now speaking of people being uh, patient versus impatient which is something we see constantly in the market another recent argument that made me shake my head and laugh was that bitcoin has failed as an inflation hedge because we've seen CPI numbers up in the United States, you know, May over May was roughly 5% and June over June was slightly higher than 5%. And alarmingly, Bitcoin didn't immediately go up. So it's not a good inflation hedge. So I'm curious. This is, um, <laughs> this is also one of the things in the markets, right? The markets are rational in the short term, um, but it's usually very accurate pricing things in the long term. That was exactly what I talked about earlier, like nine months of supply shock. The market did not have even an inkling of how to price that in until eventually um, the supply ran out and they had to figure that out. Um, so like right now we're in this zone where the market is ridiculously irrational and caught up in fear. And um, the supply shock currently values Bitcoin at above 50,000 if you can shake off the fear. Um, the, the velocity valuation of Bitcoin is um, in the high 40s. Um, supply shock is in the 50s. Stock to flow ratio is, what is it, close to 70,000. These are the fundamental um, valuations on Bitcoin. And um, the market is stuck in fear mode in the 30s. Um, I kind of suspect that it's more than fear. I think that it's being manipulated down for more accumulation. Um, massive amount of accumulation happening right now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's... Often um, the market is game theoretic to make um, the smartest and richest um, trader um, more money. Yeah, I mean, so, the longer we go sideways, the more do, you have to- Do you to trade like that? I, I, I mean, I, I don't trade much anymore because Bitcoin went so high that I had the um, luxury of becoming a really passionate investor and not having to bother trading, which is something that I've always you know traded with a small part of my stack. But I personally- I believe that this is an exceptional time to buy. I mean, I like a 55% discount on an oh, asset that I, that I want to uh, retire it's, on. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And I don't care if it's it goes to 20 ridiculous. or 25, it's irrelevant, right? So, um, and that, sure, that could happen. But everything I'm seeing now, sort of like you're talking about, once again, now we sort of have people getting impatient, price ranges endlessly, and eventually... I would, they wouldn't have sold at 35, but now they think 35 all of a sudden is a great place. And we're seeing those newer speculators getting impatient and selling back into the hands of whales who are accumulating. And the real whales, not the noob whales. 
Yeah, the real ones, the ones that are uh, really stacking. Um, we're actually we're in a zone where, um, like, uh, the the smart money has completely stopped selling. Um, it's at a, a local um, minimum. Um, we call this destruction. This is another metric. You know, you can look at the age of the coins moving um, per volume moving between um, investors, and whenever it reaches a low of destruction, meaning those coins that have that are moving between investors are young. That means the sellers are noobs um, right. at maximum noobishness. Um, <laughs> and whenever that that bottoms, um, yeah, that's that's a time to buy. And it's just bottomed in this last week. Um, we're at max noob selling, and the the OGs are not selling. Um, so that's 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 uh, they're buying, right? So that's another one right now. Um, if you wind back the clock to 2018 to now, the network growth in terms of um, users you can see on the blockchain, it's gone parabolic, right? It doesn't go parabolic, like it like the user growth on the net. I'm I'm talking about parabolic on a log chart, you know, like we're used to. Yeah. Um, Normally it does that sort of, it grows and then it starts to taper, the growth rate starts to taper off. For the last three years, the growth rate has been going parabolic, um, never been seen before. Um, so um, is it an inflation hedge? Well, don't look at the price, look at the fundamentals. It is, right. people are exactly. flying into Bitcoin. It's not being reflected in price because the price action is irrational. And sometimes it's suppressed by very strong hands that are scooping more. <laughs> so there's all sorts of um, weird effects like Elon Musk effects on the short-term price. But when I look at on-chain, I filter all the noise out and I can see the long-term um, movement in capital and, and um, you know, fundamental valuations on this network and, um, you know, price doesn't norm often it tracks, but not always. And when it doesn't, those are great opportunities because never in the history of Bitcoin has the fundamentals been um, not not played out. You know, they always play out. Yeah, it just it always catches up. Yeah, I've always made the argument that price and value are two very, very vastly different things, right? Because yeah. um, you know, the price is being set by speculators and. It really is incredible as I've been gone down this journey for five years to be able to actually quantify that value with on-chain metrics and following people, you know, like yourself, because <laughs> at, the, at the beginning, you just see price and you say, this is what it's worth, right? And I think it, obviously we all know that it's worth more. And the notion that an inflation hedge would be defined in such a short period of time is such nonsense when you're buying it to hedge against inflation 20 years from now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I mean, often when inflation hits, it's there's a delay mechanism before everything goes haywire. Um, and but you know, going back to the the short term pricing, like we were in an era 2018, 2019, even early 2020, um, you could describe the price of Bitcoin as it's not fundamentally driven. It was um, effectively a random walk in the direction that would liquidate the most amount of traders on BitMEX, right? And you could, you could actually, if, if you could figure out how much money could be made by liquidating the most traders, that would be the direction Bitcoin would move in. It's like this car swerving, take out as many traders. And, and effectively, that's a speculator game. Um, so it doesn't follow fundamentals. It, it does track it once the price deviates so far, like it goes so far below fundamentals that fundamental investors come in and scoop up, they absolutely scoop up the, um, those coins so it can't drop below. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a waiting game. It's, you know, it's patience. And um, certainly this last two months has been very much a patience um, game. You know, accumulation bands are patient. It's yeah. about patience. Yeah. Well, we were joking before we started recording that Plan B, who uh, introduced us, was smart enough to get on a boat for the summer and <laughs> go away. <laughs> yeah, mind you, I think that um, all fireworks is going to break loose in the next week. Um, I yeah. kind of think that's going to happen pretty. It's going to be next yeah. week or the week after. Um, and and he'll be probably kicking himself on a boat. He's probably yeah. got internet access, but you know. I don't know. He's not a trader, so no, no, not at all. It's just funny. So I'm curious if you have a oh shit price, where if it drops below this price, you're like oh shit, 
I was wrong. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe there's something false here or is it really price is completely irrelevant when you're looking at your analysis? Um, well, there's definitely a oh shit price if I'm in a leverage trade. Um, always. Like usually, the oh, usually the oh shit happens um, if the fundamentals start to swing, right? Sometimes these these market events that happen where price action actually changes the fundamental you know um like we saw that in the the short squeeze um in was it 2019 when price broke out of the four thousand dollar range and it just went all the way to 14 and um you know it squeezed investors it squeezed investors and effectively it was well overvalued but as it was running up so fast investors started to get FOMO and then then we started to see the fundamentals started to conform to the price action and it pulled the fundamentals up and so I mean if you can create enough fear in the market um, the fundamentals um, can change and then I would go oh shit yeah but we're luckily we're in the zone where as the price is going down everyone's going oh shit and buying and so, <laughs> like it's just like really juicy right now um and it's it's really great because um you know crypto twitter is full of bearishness everyone's oh, just, it's 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 like floating in the dead sea there's so much salt it's unbelievable it's it's, it's like um because you know i was tweeting bearish tweets after bearish tweets based on on-chain analysis in 2018 and bear market of that and they hated me absolutely hated me um and um now i'm doing bullish tweets and they're hating hating it saying it's going to 20 but it just says to me like actually the whole thing's flipped everyone wants to buy bitcoin but they want to buy it cheap and they right. want the twenty thousand dollar bitcoin price so they can buy it um those are the people who buy 50. those are the people who buy 50 those are the people who buy it at 50 yeah. on the way up when they're finally it's gonna pump. that's how markets work I don't know if it's yeah, going to go up or down, but discounted. right. I, I don't know if it's going to go up or down, but I do know that when it's seemingly everyone wants to buy at a lower price, they all buy higher. <laughs> That's just, uh, I mean, Absolutely. you can see that in the history of markets everywhere, right? That's not unique to Bitcoin. And, and it's interesting now because on-chain analysis is very widespread um, and everyone's got access to the charts. Um, and so people are posting very bearish on-chain analysis too. Um, but I, I'd have you know that the on-chain analysis um, for the bearish stuff is um, fundamentally very bad analysis, and it's right. it's um, flawed analysis with major gaps and misunderstanding of um, what the data they're looking at is is actually saying. Um, to that end, I'm actually curious. So obviously, traders spoof and manipulate the market all the time manipulate because it's a free market and there's no rules against putting up a buy wall or sell wall can on-chain metrics be spoofed or manipulated by big players can they send a whole lot of coins to one wallet or another to make you as an on-chain analyst believe that something's happening that's not or would they uh yeah it's um it's a lot harder to um it's not impervious but um these different tiers of data and like you like for example you can spoof addresses like active addresses is very easy to spoof and there's a high correlation to price historically to active addresses but um you know some of the very you know much more sophisticated data we've got now like glassnode do on-chain forensics to cluster all the addresses together and go that is one person you know and so you can't really um, easily spoof that, you know, you can't fake being a million people. Literally, you need to fake being a million people to make yeah. a difference on the network. And that's very hard. That's a large amount of capital to deal with. Um, the cost is prohibitive. You need probably a lot of development and wallets to be able to, to fake that kind of stuff. Um, and even then would look at the amount of capital you're throwing. So um, if you're trying to spoof that stuff, you, you better be worth like, you know, 10, 20, 50, $100 billion. Um, right, for a team to be worth You know, it. particularly, yeah. yeah, and also we filter out a lot of the stuff that's new. Like, um, we, you know, you, we want to look at the coins that have aged. So how can you, like those coins that were five years aged, moving between one participant to another, you can't fake that. Like, you can have to wait five years before you try that scam again on the network. So... Um, yeah, it's very difficult to fake that, that the, the, the really good data, um, you know, like there's very rudimentary data that's given for free 
um, but the really good stuff um, costs money and that stuff is hard to um, fake, you know, to get access to that data. And that's the data, um, you know, I'm working with. And, you know, all the stuff on Twitter is, is the cheap free stuff. Um, and none of the people that have access to this higher tier of data is um, posting anything bearish. Um, right. So, Which is very interesting. I saw you say that on Twitter, that basically if you have access to the good data, it's very hard to build a bearish case. Yeah, it's very hard. And like, you know, it's crypto Twitter is fortunate because there's a number of us, you know, William Clemente is, uh, is also tweeting at that tier of data. Um, I, I do a bit of it. Um, I try not to tweet too much these days because I'm just sick of like the, <laughs> the BS trolling. Yeah. So I forget it. Uh, like, yeah. I mean to be a service guys, but forget it. <laughs> a, a voluntary beating is not really high on my uh, list of yeah, fun I things mean, to do. I also tweet less for the very same reason. I mean, yeah, exactly. But so. I, I'm, I'm curious, you talk about obviously like uh, five-year-old coins being moved in a large tranche, something that you wouldn't wouldn't be able to fake, but also to what end would you even try? I'm curious when you see things like that, how easy is it to identify whether perhaps that's an OTC deal or is it perhaps just somebody changing their custody or security? How do you know why these coins are moving? Yeah, that's a hugely good question. Um, it's, it's like when you see that, you know, you'll see it in one dimensional network. So you will, you will see it in, um, say, like dormancy or the destruction of um, coin. We call it destruction, pretty much the aging, you know, the age, the fine wine aging of these coins and wallets right. um, as they just get destroyed. Their age, um, you go, oh, there's a blip here. But then, um, of course, no one chart is. Um, the holy grail um, you need to look at you know we have like four or five hundred charts of the network and um, you go ah oh, well this could mean a b or c so <laughs> it's a process elimination so if it's otc you will go to the otc chart and because we're tracing that right you can say there's some amount of data showing um, what's happening on otc desks um, and and so forth like there's there's um, like, for example, someone posted um, like the 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 wallets um, of a thousand bitcoins or higher is um, they're reducing, meaning whales are selling. Well, it doesn't mean whales are selling. It could be wallet consolidation. It could be a number right. of things. So then um, you you need to track how much is you know is is it is is it exchange balances. Um, you know, because they're the biggest whales out there, which is Binance, you know, they'll, they'll look on, they hold the most um, wallets with over a thousand Bitcoins. Are they, um, is it supply shock? Is it actually everyone's buying coins and taking it off Binance into cold storage because they're stacking hard? That's bullish. It's not bearish that whales are. Right. Dumping. So you need to look at all these dimensions. And um, once you have the good data and you look at all the different possibilities and eliminate them, then you can ascertain what is happening in the network um, with much higher probability than just, uh, you know, it's kind of a guess with past correlations. Like right now, active addresses dropping through the floor, which is correlated to price, right? When you see this thing dropping to the floor, it's been fuel for a lot of bearish people because it's like, you know, uh, there's no activity. That means that the network's not growing. Um, actually, what's actually happened is we've had two rounds of miners shut down. And so the blocks are being processed at one third of the rate. So obviously the activity in the addresses has to go to one third of the rate because they can't process at the same speed. Um, so uh, when you, you have to take that into account, um, so there's all these sort of things you need to know about the network when you're <laughs> you're going to do analysis. So yeah, yeah. Listening to you talk about it is really enlightening because I, I'm on Twitter. I see hundreds of these charts that don't consider any of that. Right? It's very binary. This moved. It went from here to there, and then they ascertain Ask what correlation, that means. Right? But but clear yeah, causation correlation. Right? Um, so clearly, you have to be looking much much deeper and. <laughs> yeah, like like technical analysis, people become you know basic uh, beginner technical analysis. They draw a couple lines and they think they're a master. It's probably very much similar with on chain. 
you look at your three or four things that you track and you think that you then understand what's happening, but probably not the case. It's not, it's not usually the case. And I, I mean, I, I see people posting XYZ as a counterpoint on chain analysis as a counterpoint. And sometimes I don't even like, don't want to even get started because it's like yeah. a tweet thread of 10 charts and then none of them are analyzed properly. And then when I say, I don't want to get started with this because there's so much wrong in this. And they'll just say, oh, that's because you, <laughs> then they'll say something really trollish. Like it's because you've got no <laughs> way to refute my strong argument. <laughs> like, yeah. No, it's just because I've got only a certain amount of time in the day. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of things right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I'm curious. Yeah, sort of time waster sometimes. <laughs> oh, yeah ultimate. So I'm curious to pivot. Do you think that we get to a point in the future where Bitcoin is viewed by, you know, uh, Wall Street or your average individual mainstream adoption at a level where it's just another asset in your portfolio, where it's so mainstream that people go, I have a portfolio of stocks and bonds and some crypto and something else? Or do you think that we remain sort of this fringe asset and fringe community? I think um, we've probably got another two to four years to be considered fringe. Um, From four years onwards, definitely it'll be mainstream. Um, Just in the adoption numbers, I think it's we're now in the transition from fringe to mainstream. We can see that from obviously the whales dumping, the hedge funds dumping. Um, it means that I've been in this game. Wall Street has been in this game um, for the last year at very large um, capital compared to what we're used to. Um, and, you know, like, um, you know, it probably doesn't take much conversation to realize that some of the smartest people on Wall Street are now bored with traditional finance and really excited about what they can build and what they can do in crypto. Um, certainly the yields inside um, crypto are huge Um, you know like this market is so inefficient talking to some Wall Street guys they're like they look at the the markets here they run their models across it and their jaw drops they go what it's like, like 1980 for them. Yeah, it's like 1980 yeah, for like, Wall Street. They're like making like uh, 20% per week by running arbitrage from their standard <laughs> Wall Street models onto here. And they're like, we've got to get into this, you know, because the volume is big enough now. They can run yeah. enough fun doing this stuff. So that's the that's the thing right now. This market is so inefficient that Wall Street's coming in. And anyone with that kind of background is coming in and adding efficiency to the market. And you can almost measure um the adoption is is the you know the crazy inefficiency start to like close um but you know like if you're if you're in um traditional finance you're you're lucky if you're getting you know uh, you know maybe a few percentage points on your cash but the yields in, in crypto are very easy to be double digit um triple digits if you really know what you're doing um, That's interesting because a lot of the excitement for mainstream is the yields that are being passed on by these companies, the Voyagers, BlockFi's, Celsius, Nexo, Amber, of course. But as you said, you know they're obviously having to take advantage of some arbitrage opportunity to pass those yields on to their customers. If the market becomes more efficient, won't those yields steadily disappear for, for the mainstream? Yeah, we're, I seeing, think, we're uh, seeing with BlockFi sure, already. BlockFi, yeah, BlockFi went from 6% to 1%, I think, largely because of the GBTC premium dis- disappearing in a matter of months. Uh, yeah, true. true. Like, those yields are completely trashed in, in a bearish phase. Um, but yeah. And also the volume is very, very low right now. So, you know, I think some of the, the loaning out goes to market makers. They need the access right. to the liquidity to be able to market make. And because the volume is so low, you know, it's very low. Yield, need it. um, right yeah. Now. yeah. Yeah. But they're still making a little. Um, I mean, everybody's yeah. still making money, but it's, it, it is just interesting because we know that this market will become far more efficient with time and those opportunities will disappear. I mean, remember in 2017, even as just an average person, there was a time when you could arbitrage between exchanges on Bitcoin with a $3,500 gap. 
It would be trading yeah, at 19,000 one place and 15,500 somewhere else. There was a week where I was just cycling uh, Litecoin between Coinbase, Binance, and Bittrex for 5 to 10% difference as fast as I could move it. Free money. Manually, right? Manually. Free, right? Yeah, I was literally I was like, like, oh, it's going to take me 30 exactly. minutes to send. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I remember when Bitcoin for, um, cash fork came out. And, you know, I remember like there was huge inefficiencies. I, I think I creamed five bitcoins that day, just moving, <laughs> moving yeah, coins around. Right, that doesn't ridiculous. exist anymore. Right, and so I guess we can see that that's a that's probably a statement of how much more mature the market is and how much further it will mature. Interesting though, like we all talk about Wall Street and hedge funds, and it's exciting that they're here and they're moving money around this market. But isn't like rationally that sort of contrary to the original purpose of Bitcoin? It's like, you know, you have the sort of short the banker, long Bitcoin mentality, but then they also make the number go up. So we cheer them. But for your average person, say in Venezuela or Lebanon or Iran, who cares about Bitcoin, they don't want Wall Street and institutions here, right? They want, uh, they want to use Bitcoin as money or a store of value. I think it's, uh, I think it's a little bit more um, yeah, nuanced in that, in that like, we're not saying like the bankers are here which you know, I'm sure they are coming in. <laughs> well, they definitely are. They are. It's actually a really interesting. I'll get to that later. But like what I'm saying is the smart guys, you know, it's the rocket scientists. They're trained to put, you know, rockets into space, being hired up by some quant firm to build, you know, some front-running software to, to beat the market. And then they're coming over to crypto to go, wow, it's inefficient. Let's build some stuff to make it efficient. Um, it's not like the chairman of Goldman Sachs coming in to do that because um, those guys come in and they want to dominate and control the currency. These guys are coming in to build cool stuff to, to add to the ecosystem. And um, ultimately, I think um, I don't think I've come across anyone who doesn't really, like after working with it, really believe in the, the ethos of it, um, you know, and usually in a much more sophisticated way. Um, so like you look at... Um, um, SBF over at FTX, right? Um, he's had, he's exactly that, what I'm talking about. Like a little bit of Wall Street um, background and coming over like, whoa, look at all this stuff. Let's build some cool shit. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. Um, meanwhile, you've got the bankers coming over and they're coming over in a really interesting um, rock and a hard place because they make commercial and retail banks make money by essentially propagating debt. Um, and expanding the money supply, you know, through their process of loaning out and then um, getting deposits and loaning out and they expand the money supply. And uh, effectively the central bank goes down through this food chain. And now with central banks effectively saying, we're cutting you guys out, we're gonna issue our own currency, central bank digital currencies, um, you know, the retail and commercial banks are now faced with two things that they can do. Um, option one is to roll over and die. And option two is to be a Bitcoin bank, right? Essentially be on the other side, like of the divide, because really it's coming down to central bank digital currencies and free and open peer-to-peer -peer, um, currency. Um, and so you can see um, one by one, you know, like, what is it? DBS Singapore's banking Bitcoin. Standard Charter, I think, is initiating something in Europe. Um, Morgan Stanley moving, JP Morgan. And this is like, they're all coming over to Bitcoin and they basically, they don't have a choice. So that's the interesting thing is on that side of things, those guys are coming into Bitcoin with their, well, I think their tails tucked because oh, yeah. they're forced to. With, with the valuations now, no, no better than Coinbase. Right. Yeah. And um and and um SBF now like <laughs> I don't know if he was joking or was being serious, uh, but it's like it's not out of the question to acquire Goldman Sachs. Like or it gives the CME. you a little uh, yeah. Well and the CME, right? It gives you a little bit of a you know, a completely flip side thing. We're not that small anymore. Definitely not at the current growth rates. How big of a smile did it put on your face when you read that? Because I <laughs> that to, to me that was like that was the funniest and most amazing news story in ages just the fact that i mean and he mean <laughs> the thing is he means it yeah yeah right it's well it's backed by data it's backed by the yeah. growth rate right um like this thing's going to 
it's it's going to 100 trillion um if not more um i imagine the economy is going to get a lot bigger um just because productivity is improving um so yeah like uh this is this is probably a 10x above what banks um the size of the scale of banks you know so uh yeah i mean we're so used to was it 12 years of being the little guys but now we're in this zone of breaking out of being little to becoming mainstream and you know you you can tell that because the chairman of um of central banks are now you know fudding bitcoin they're talking about it i mean regardless of what they're saying the very fact that they're talking about it is astounding it's it's, it's like to. the very largest banking powers in the world are now um, scared of this little thing that we thought was a toy a few years ago, you know. So it really is, and it, it's like it's, you know, what is it? It's roughly 160 million people have exposure to Bitcoin today, um, but that doubles every year, you know. So it's not actually about... It's not actually about the size we are in, but it's the growth rate. And the current network growth rate is the fastest growth rate of any technology Technology. we've ever seen in the history of mankind, Um, which means that we'll be at saturation within a decade. Um, I mean, I'm kind of wondering how long will it take for um, central bank digital currencies to actually roll out and be ready? Because... They've got a race on their hands. If they can't get this done in five years, um, it's over. Yeah, they'll have lost. Over. It, yeah. But, but it's it, it's it's what the crypto is de facto. Bitcoin is de facto. Um, it's too late. Um, yeah, I agree. really only got a window of probably I don't know two three years. to five years. Yeah, maybe two. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they. I mean, China is going to roll out, but the others are going to be very slow. Yeah, China. Yeah, China's going to be a very well. It's going to be quite a closed. I imagine it'd be quite closed because yeah, um, how they do it. They'll be the fastest. Um, they'll, they'll be the fastest. But you know, um, easy to be fast when uh, you have c- complete control over over what you're building. You don't have to ask uh, anyone else's opinion. It's, it's so funny though. Talking about what you mentioned with SBF, I had Stephen uh, Stoneberg from Bitrex Global on the show, and he said. You know, it used to be like the bankers were the rich guys. And then in like the 70s, 80s, whatever, the, the hedge fund guys came in. They're like, ha ha, you're a billion. I've got two billion. Like we're the rich guys. And now <laughs> you have 28 year olds who are worth 10 or 20 billion and just completely right. So the future of wealth is going to move to the crypto billionaires. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's and, and, and they're going to be 20, 30 years younger than the guys who made their money yeah. on Wall Street. And and this is the interesting thing is like, um, you know, the founding fathers, fathers of America were um, essentially millennials when they wrote <laughs> the founding documents, right? And I mean, I'm, there's been cases like this in Europe. I think is it Estonia, I think, is one of these countries where the they it was like the average age of the politicians was in their 30s um like like a lot of progress happens when um the younger generation get to rewrite the rules according to the changing times um and like what's interesting now is the new power that's rising as um you know the millennial generation but the you know, the cream of the crop are making billions in crypto right now. Yeah. And they have a very fine understanding of how monetary markets work. Um, So I see a huge power change, you know, right now. It's like, uh, if you ever read the book, The Fourth Turning, um, you know, it really describes every four generations. They go through um, archetypal kind of um, changes and every fourth turning, um, last one was, the Great Depression going into World War II, and we had a major shift of regime and an infrastructure change. You know, all the strong institutions we were built in present day was built then um, with high integrity, and now they've been dismantled. Um, and we're actually in that fourth turning and the fourth generation of that happening now. 
Um, and it's the millennial generation that are now very capitalized with the, the you know, the ones that are capitalized like SPF. <laughs> um, they're very, you know, it's new values. It's it's going to be a really interesting time in the next um, 10 years. I think it's a ridiculous amounts of change we're going to have. And I, I think it's going to be positive. Um, I'm not doom or gloom. Might be a bit of pain in the short term, but I think it's Always positive. Is. So you talk about this thing going to a hundred trillion, right? So what does that mean for Bitcoin price? Yeah, I mean, per Bitcoin, right? Right. Yeah, hundred trillion dollars per Bitcoin, obviously. <laughs> if anybody's it's listening, Willie Wu has just predicted hundred trillion dollar Bitcoin. Just so you guys hear. <laughs> it's possible if, if if USD goes to zero. <laughs> but reasonably, what I mean, you know, uh, cycle tops. Is there a last cycle? Does it eventually just become a stable asset? You know, because there, it, it's a standard. Where's this thing going in your mind? Um, I'm, I'm more and more siding on the last cycle. Um, I, 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 you can even see it on the chart. It's a drunken walk right now of demand and supply. Um, we've had parabolic rises and a blow off top in four year cycles for three times now. Um, and this time we're, we're doing these kind of weird drunken walks of demand and supply as different participants come in and different effects happen. And so um, I'm kind of like with Michael Saylor, which he said to uh, Laura Shin, there is no top, Laura. <laughs> I think we might just not have these four-year cycles because they're predicated on um, a, a supply shock from the halvening. You know, every four years, um, the sell pressure from miners halves. And the sell pressure from miners is getting pretty small now. We're at, what, 1.7% inflation rate. Um, per year from miners um, and the next halvening goes from 1.7 to like 0.8 percent or something like that it's uh, that's infinitesimal in in a supply shock when exchanges are already almost double that like the sale pressure from exchanges if they were to sell all of their fees revenue onto them to interfere not saying they do they but they do sell some of it um, the potential for their sell pressure is two times what miners do. Um, the sell pressure from Grayscale's um, ETF, well, it's not an ETF, but their fee management fees of 2% is about 5% of all the miners combined right now. So as ETFs start to climb, their sell pressure comes in. So there's all these kind of um, mature market, um, like, demand supply impacts that um, are really starting to reduce um, what impacts miners have, which is what the, the four-year cycles is predicated on. So I, I think we're now in the, um, in the last cycle. And, you know, some people say, oh, we're getting lengthening cycles. No, it's just like we've just made a binary um, shift from four-year cycles into um, correlations in demand and supply to macro markets. But it's funny when you say the last cycle, I think your average person, the first thing is going to be like, oh my God, that's bearish. Like, this is it? It just <laughs> went up and we're, we're done. But I think the point is that it will just continue to rise. And even a 50% correction will be more temporary and we don't have to wait four years to start going up again. Yeah. That, thanks for the, the clarification. I mean, <laughs> it, it, the, I, I like the last cycle is so dramatic, you know, but you might yeah. use Dan Howard's super cycle. I mean, that sounds yeah. like we might skip a cycle, but I think it's like the, the, the cycles are ended and now we're just the only way is up <laughs> through a drunken wander. So just to conclude, Willie Wu says that one Bitcoin will be worth a few hundred trillion dollars and uh, that we're in a super cycle that never ends. I got it. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. No, but I know that uh, that doesn't mean that Bitcoin <laughs> is going to a couple hundred trillion dollars, but it's always good to get a uh, joking soundbite. So I know that we're up against it here with time. Where it's can everybody? A, it's good to get a headline, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't worry. Uh, so where can everybody uh, follow you after this and uh, keep up with what you're doing? Um, mainly on Twitter, um, if the trolling is under control, uh, <laughs> it's Woonomic. Um, I also write an investment newsletter, essentially forecasting on-chain demand supply. So if you're you're a long-term or even a medium-term investor and um, you need that kind of intelligence, whether it's just to, um, you know, like 
give you a little bit more confidence of not to sell <laughs> or um you know even if you're a trader and you want to do swing trades um it's good to get visibility it's not going to tell you buy here or sell there it's going to give you um the kind of regime environment we're in and um give you a bit more um you know full visibility of what's really happening um so you can make your own you know risk management decisions and so if you want to look at that um yeah it's linked to my twitter account that's the easiest way to find it so yeah it's amazing i highly recommend to everybody it's on Substack. i know it's an incredible incredible newsletter well thank you so much for uh taking the time to do this um really an honor and very very enlightening and i think that when you do have someone who really understands the on-chain analysis and the fundamentals it gives you a lot more confidence in the asset long term and it's easy for your average person i think to get very caught up in the news cycles and what they see on twitter and not really understand how important and powerful this asset is and how early we still are yeah exactly well it's been really fun scott um been looking forward to, to talking to you all day so it's been awesome great. thank you man we'll do this again down the road and see uh, if we actually hit a few hundred trillion okay <laughs> <laughs> thank you okay we'll get you later <laughs>